John 16, John 16, and in your books, we're going to be on lesson, you know what, I don't have it, what is it, 158, okay, and let me tell you before we have a word of prayer, I'm not going to get through everything that I did in the books, which I thought I would last week when I told you, last week we talked about his, um, the Holy Spirit's comforting ministry, and I said next time we would talk about both his reproving and his teaching ministry, wrong. <laughs> I got to studying, and today we're just going to talk about the Holy Spirit's reproving ministry, and next week we'll talk about his teaching ministry. There's just too much in there for me to compact it all into one lesson. And so what I would like you to do is go ahead and answer. You can read the whole chapter and answer all the questions. If your leaders want to save the last two questions to discuss the next week, I'll leave that up to them because there's only two questions that are on the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. And by next week, after I study that, I might come up with a few more questions so you have more to discuss in your group on the week to follow. But you can answer all ten questions if you read the books. But if you get short on time, just leave the last two. All right, let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would truly, truly revive your people and that we would find our true satisfaction and our true joy in you. And we look ahead, Father, to that day of your son's coming, his return. And we know that our redemption is nearer, far nearer than when we first believed. And we pray for that coming. And we rejoice in those things that we see taking place in the world today. Some of them so clearly fulfillment of things stated in your word thousands of years ago. All part of your eternal purposes that shall not fail. You have spoken and you will do it. You're not a man that you would lie. Thank you, Father, that your arm is strong, that doors you open cannot be shut, and doors you shut cannot be opened. We pray, Father, that the nations might come to know you in these latter days, and that they might come to behold the God of all the earth, the only true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may they come to see themselves as but the dust of the balances, hardly to be taken account of, except that they turn and bow down and worship you and worship your Son. And Father, now our heart's cry is to be saved fully from our sins in every way. And may our lesson this morning contribute to that. And we will thank you for it, for we pray for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. What I want to do this morning is begin by reading the scripture. We're only going to look at a few verses, so it's not going to take very long to do that. If you would look with me at John 16, starting at verse 8, I'm just going to read verses 8 to 11. The Lord said in John 16, verse 8, and when he... Well, let me back up and read verse 7, just for a review. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth... It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And then starting with our scripture for today. And when he, who is the he? 
the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit's ministry after the Lord's ascension back to his Father was not merely going to be to strengthen and comfort believers as they pass through this world encountering all of its hatred and animosity, rejection, and persecution. The Holy Spirit was also sent by God the Father and God the Son to convict the world, to reprove the world so that many would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit, you see, was not only going to have a defensive ministry for believers as their comforter, but he was also to have an offensive ministry, an aggressive ministry to the world itself as the world's reprover. So a defensive ministry for believers, but an offensive ministry to the world. Now, Dr. Harold Wilmington writes this. He says, quote, the Spirit's new ministry was to be universal worldwide. Previously, the Holy Spirit had confined his work among humanity to the nation of Israel. Dr. Wilmington says there is no record before the book of Acts that he, the Spirit, fell upon Greeks or Romans or Babylonians, etc. End of quote. Now, as I mentioned last week, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament days would work, we know, individually with people, right? He did work individually with a few Gentiles, not many, but with and with Jews. Um, but he never, he did not work universally. <clears throat> and that's one new aspect of this ministry that he's going to have after the Lord's ascension to heaven. Another new me- uh, aspect of his ministry is that it was to be permanent. Remember the Lord said in John fourteen seventeen, you know, the spirit dwelleth with you and he shall be what? In you. That had never occurred before in Old Testament days. He had never dwelt permanently in believers. And so instead of merely coming upon certain Old Testament individuals to inspire them with God's words or to do particular works for the Lord, the Spirit would indwell believers permanently. I mean, we have a very unique situation with God the Holy Spirit, don't we? that no other people have ever had or will have, except in heaven. Now, the third new aspect of the Spirit's ministry is that it was to be perfecting. So universal, permanent, and perfecting. His new ministry would be to make all repenting sinners grow in grace and in Christ's likeness. Did you know that that was not the case? In the Old Testament, there is no indication that the moral and spiritual spiritual nature of men such as Balaam and King Saul and Samson. Now, the Spirit came upon those men, but there's no indication that their spiritual nature was advanced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. They derived only his power to do what they were elected by God to do, 
but they did not derive his purity. So differences. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to launch into something that's going to be really interesting. It is to me. I hope it will be to you. It's going to sidetrack for a minute. But I don't know how many of you really, really understand the significance of what took place on the day of Pentecost. Isn't that a wonderful sound? Sound of a baby. For somebody else to have that. <laughs> oh, but... The, the day of Pentecost was extremely, you know, of all the important days in history, the day of Pentecost surely ranks way up there as one of the very most important. Now, the, the word Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, Pentecost comes from, who knows, the Greek word that means 50. Very good. Just means 50 because it occurred how many days after the Lord's resurrection? 50 days after the Lord's resurrection. Now, how many of you, I want you to be honest with me about this. How many of you know that there was an Old Testament Pentecost? The Jews celebrate <clears throat> what is called the Feast of Weeks um, or the Feast of Shavuot, which is the Hebrew word for weeks. And they, all right, let me just back up. Do you know what the Jews say occurred on the first Pentecost? And they don't call it Pentecost because it's a Greek word. They call it the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. Shavuot is the Hebrew word for weeks because it's seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits which corresponds to the Lord's resurrection, okay? But they have a Feast of First Fruits. Well, they go seven sevens after that feast, and then they add one more day. Seven sevens is 49, right? Should ask our resident mathematician here. <laughs> seven sevens is 49. So after their feast of first fruits, they go 49 days, and then it says after the 49 to the next day, which is the 50th day, they have the feast of weeks, which is when they wave as a, an offering, waved two sheaves before the Lord um, with, with leaven in them. And one, I'll tell you, one represents the Jews and one represents the, the uh, Gentiles that would become one body. Anyway, but that, they celebrate the feast 50 days after their other feast, and it's called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Shavuot. And they say that this was the day that God gave the law at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is, this, is this is the Old Testament Pentecost. Now, that was kind of new to me. Like a lot of you are looking at me, what are you talking about, Kevin? Okay, but then I went back and I started studying and I got all my Jewish books and I was reading them and sure enough, do you know that the Jews, you know, when they had Passover, they had their Passover on the 14th of Nisan, Right? And then they then they had their exodus. They were they they left Egypt. And do you know how many days it took them to get to the foot of Mount Sinai? It took them fifty days. They after after fifty days, I could tell you how it works. They left on the fifteenth of Nisan, right? Passover was the fourteenth, so they left on the fifteenth. There were fifteen days left in that month. And then the next month, there's 29 days. It's called the month of Iyar. So if you add the 15 days in Nisan and the 29 days in the next month, which would be Iyar, that comes to 44 days, all right? 
So that, and it tells us in Exodus 19 that they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. And the Jews, and that would be 44 days. Okay, you can, if you have that, you can look at that, what she's holding up there. Does that tell you the months? Okay. Anyway, on this you're going to have to trust me because it's not in your notes and I'm sure I'm confusing you. But anyway, the Jews say, they got there 44 days. They say that God gave Moses the law after they had arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, that he gave them the law on the sixth day, which if you add 44 and 6, what do you get? 50. So on the 50th day... That is when, you know, there were three days before that God told them to prepare themselves and get cleansed and everything. And on that 50th day, we're told that Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we read this in Exodus 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mountain and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke covered with this dark heavy smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And do you know what happened? The Lord spoke to the people through his prophet Moses, right? That is what the Jews celebrate on the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot, or what we call Pentecost, 50 days after their exodus. They celebrate the giving of the law to Moses, through Moses. Now, what do we read about the New Testament Pentecost? And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they, the apostles, were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. I want to right now read to you something that really moved me. This is a description right out of the book of Acts of what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. This is a book that you you could all buy called The Feast of the Lord. Um, And we have a copy of it in our church library. You wouldn't want to borrow mine because it's literally falling apart. (laughs) But let me read to you this. It's so fascinating. And just hang with me because you're going to get excited when I get to the conclusion, all right? The year was around A.D. 30. It was a hot morning late in the month of May when the day of Shavuot, or what? Pentecost, 50 days after the Lord's resurrection, when the day of Shavuot came that year, the fiery topaz of a Judean sun was already high above the horizon, several hours along on its daily trek. A thin blanket of low-lying morning clouds had long since disappeared in the presence of its heat, leaving only a clear blue sky above Jerusalem. In the stillness of the mid-morning air, the temple morning service could be heard as it concluded. Now remember, this is a day that the Jews are celebrating the giving of the law at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they had a ritual that they went through 
They'd get up early in the morning and they would recite after a blast of trumpets. They would um, pray and there would be the solitary voice of a reader chanting from Ezekiel and Habakkuk. And here's what they what they would read literally on the day of Pentecost. And they still do this to this day. They read from Ezekiel and they read about his vision when he witnessed wind, fire and voices It says, uh, then I looked, this is Ezekiel speaking, and I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. And then the spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice saying, blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. They would read that. On the day of Pentecost, early in the morning. They still do. They also would read from Habakkuk, where the Lord revealed um, the Messiah's coming in fire and bright light. It says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. His brightness was like the light, and fever followed at his feet. Interestingly, they would also read the entire book of Ruth which is interesting because Ruth was a Gentile who came to believe in the God of her mother-in-law, the God of Israel. All right, so that's what they would do, get up early in the morning. And that's what they were doing on this day we're reading about. That's described for us in Acts chapter 2. Throngs of Jewish worshipers crowded the temple courts. Since Shavuot was a pilgrim holiday, many were conspicuously visiting from other countries throughout the Middle East, Northern Africa, Europe, and Asia. Remember, it's one of the three feasts that all men were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. So, on the day of Pentecost... The temple was filled on this early morning with people from literally all over the known world, Jews and Gentiles too. Uh, Suddenly, from high overhead, the roar of a violent windstorm was heard. But how could this be? There were no clouds and there was no breeze. It was the wrong time of the year for a storm. The worshipers stood confused, searching the cloudless sky to find the source of the disturbance. The sound began to change as if it were descending toward the west. Several hundred men in the outer court rushed out to the southwest gate, past the temple guards and onto the towering steps leading down to the city below. From that lofty vantage point, the momentary flashes of what seemed like swirling bits of fire from one of the nearby houses below caught their attention. The men paused while shouting and pointing toward that house. What could this wind and strange fire mean? Could this be what they had just heard read about from Ezekiel and Habakkuk? Could it be that the Shekinah glory was returning to Israel after some 600 years? The crowd pushed onward, determined to know the matter. In a few moments, they had reached the house and were pounding on the door, had not 12 men from inside 
pushed their way to the street, the door surely would have been broken down. Why were there 12 men in that house? Because by this time, they had replaced Judas Iscariot with Matthias, okay? The 12 immediately began to address a barrage of excited questions from the crowd. But to the astonishment of the crowd, the 12 answered in the various native languages of those within the crowd. This caused an uproar of discussion. These 12 were obviously Galilean by their style of dress, but whoever had heard of an educated Galilean? (laughs) Education was centered in Jerusalem, not Capernaum. How were these uneducated Galileans able to speak not only the languages, but to speak them with the very accents as if they were their mother tongue? Many pressed for answers, while others began to mock And accuse the men of what? Drunkenness. Word of the fire and wind had spread quickly to the teeming crowds who were now leaving the temple service. The streets were filling fast and communication was becoming impossible. One of the twelve named Peter, apparently the spokesman, shouted for the crowd to follow him to the nearby plaza outside the southern entrance to the temple. And there's a picture here, if you want to come look at it, of where he probably would have gathered to speak to the crowd. It's a perfect podium, perfect place for a massive crowd to assemble. Anyway, by the time Peter lifted his hands to quiet the crowd, a sea of humanity was assembled on the plaza below. The locals recognized these Galileans as followers of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who had been crucified 50 days earlier. The crowd fell silent and fixed their gaze upon Peter as he began to speak. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. He was right. They themselves had witnessed the signs of the wind and the fire, and they had heard these twelve miraculously sharing the scriptures in their own native dialects. Surely this was the hand of God. Peter went on to quote the Hebrew prophet concerning the coming day, Joel, the coming day of God's wrath, and warned that only those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be, what, saved. This crowd of devoutly religious men remained silent. Only the distant bleeding of sheep from somewhere in the temple could be heard. There seemed to be an electricity in the air, an anticipation, even a hunger by the crowd for Peter to continue his words. And so Peter turned his words toward Jesus of Nazareth. And for the next quarter hour, he slowly, forcefully, and with a simple eloquence, reasoned from the prophecies of King David and Israel's prophets concerning the promised Messiah. 
as he shared prophecy after prophecy, which you can read in Acts chapter 2. It became obvious that the scriptures had clearly and convincingly foretold Messiah's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. How could one believe otherwise? The crowd of Orthodox men was visibly moved and beginning to mill about. Peter's words burned within their hearts. Some had tears streaming down their cheeks. Some were slowly striking their chests with clenched hand as a sign of anguish and repentance. Others could bear it no longer, and they began to shout, What should we do? With strong emotion in his voice, and I'm not doing this on purpose, Peter urged them, Repent. Motioning southward toward the nearby pool of Siloam, he continued, Then be immersed in the name of Jesus the Messiah because your sins are forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. Throughout the morning, scattered crowds could be seen in the plaza questioning and discussing with some of the twelve. Yet what was truly overwhelming was to see the throngs of men and women streaming to and from the baptismal pools. In all, some 3,000 trusted in the Lord that morning. Wow. The Old Testament Pentecost at the foot of Mount Sinai signaled technically the birth of Israel. If you read Ezekiel, I mean, I'm sorry, Exodus 19, uh, verse 5, God says to them there at the foot of Mount Sinai, you will be a peculiar treasure unto me. That was the birth of Israel and the giving of the what? The law. The New Testament Pentecost signaled the birth of what? The the church and the giving of, right, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, the grace. Interestingly, it began the age of the Spirit. Um, I don't know if I told you this before. I'm going to get off track a minute. But you know, did I tell you the Old Testament was the age of God the Father? This is the age of God the Holy Spirit and the millennial kingdom will be the age of God the Son, when, you know, he reigns for... Did I tell you that before? Okay, I did. Anyway, um, did you did you realize this when I was reading? Following Israel's disobedience, you know, in worshiping God as a golden calf. Remember that? You all remember that. Following that, the Old Testament Pentecost witnessed the slaying of some 3,000 Souls, 3,000 people killed because of disobeying, right? Whereas the New Testament Pentecost witnessed the, not the slaying of 3,000 souls, the saving of some 3,000 souls. Compare those passages. Exodus 32, 38 with Acts 241. In that comparison of 3,000 deaths, with 3,000 salvations, 
we have the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, where he said, For the law killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Did you all understand this amazing? I want you to go home and chew on that, meditate on it. Read Exodus 19 for yourself and then read Acts 2. It's not just a coincidence. It was all pre-planned by God. Amazing. Well, let's get back to our text because we're already in trouble. Okay. The key word of John 16:8 is the word reprove, which in Greek is elechi. Anybody know a little girl named Alexi? What her name means is reprove. Oh, my. <laughs> or convict. <laughs> Theologically, the word actually has two meanings. Elehi means first, uh, can be translated to convict. The spirit pricks a person's heart until he senses or knows that he or she is guilty. This word occurs, the word elehi occurs 18 times in the New Testament. And in every case, the word is used of speaking to someone about their wrong words or about their wrong actions. It's a courtroom term. The Holy Spirit acts as a judge, convicting people. Uh, of their sin. Now, a second, more positive meaning of the word elehi is to convince. So it can mean to convict and to convince. After the spirit pricks a person's heart until he senses that he is guilty, then the spirit hammers home that conviction. He drives at a person's heart until the person knows that it is a fact. He's convinced it's a fact that he stands condemned before a holy God. The Holy Spirit wants to convince men of their sin so that they what? See, see their need for the Savior. They see their need for Christ. And so he uh, wants to convince them so that he never has to condemn them. He wants to convince them so that he never has to condemn them. In both the convicting and the convincing aspects of this word, elexi, it's God's love that is at work, right? It's his mercy because he doesn't want, he wants to convict and convince people so that they will be with him throughout eternity and never be condemned. So this is the worldwide ministry of the Spirit today as he works in and through the worldwide scattered church body. Now he has his people speaking native languages everywhere, right? Not just there in Jerusalem, but speaking the languages of people so they can understand the gospel everywhere. And, of course, he uses the word of God, either written or spoken. His reproving ministry goes on all the time. But, as we well know, it does not always have the same response, does it? It does not always have the same response. Sometimes the response is repentance, as it was, you know, that day on the day of Pentecost, so many repented and, um, and confessed and, and converted. Sometimes that's the response, but most of the time, that's not the response, is it? Most of the time, the response is a hardening of the heart and rejection. And we have an example of the difference when we compare the Philippian jailer with the Roman official Felix. And interestingly, both of those men were Gentiles. And Paul, Paul spoke to both of those men. Both men were convicted by the words of the Apostle Paul. And both men were told in the scripture, both men trembled. The Philippian jailer 
and Felix when Paul spoke to them. What was that? What caused that? Was that the great words of Paul that caused the trembling? No, it was the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. However, in the case of the Philippian jailer, he was not just convicted by his conscience um, over, you know, the joyful praying and singing of Paul and Silas while they were there held fast in stocks in the prison. I mean, that, I'm sure convicted him a little bit that they could be so joyful in such circumstances. And he wasn't just convicted by the great earthquake that opened all the doors of the prison or by the fact that the prisoners were still there after the doors were open. And they shouted out to him he was going to kill himself because otherwise he would have been killed you know, by the Roman officials for the doors being open. They would never understand. But the prisoners shouted out, don't kill yourself. All that convicted him so that he cried out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? But he was not convinced. That convicted him. All that stuff convicted him. But he wasn't convinced until the word of the Lord was preached to him. You can read about that, Acts 16.32. And then he believed. Who convinced him? Who convicted him, first of all? The Spirit. And then who convinced him by the word of God through the mouth of Paul? The Holy Spirit. He was convinced, the Philippian jailer was convinced of his desperate condition without the Savior, and he believed and he was baptized and his whole household with him. But Felix, go to go to Felix, or also called Festus. He was a Roman official official. He also had his conscience pricked regarding his guilt. We are told that Paul spoke to him of faith in Christ and and Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness and about his sin and about judgment to come. Those are words right out of Acts. And we are told Felix trembled, just like the Philippian jailer. That was, again, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. using Paul. However, as is true of so many people down through the church age who also come under conviction, Felix did what? He put off making his decision. He was convicted. He was pricked in his heart, but he stopped short of letting the Spirit convince him. He didn't want to hear anymore because he knew he'd be convinced if Paul kept speaking. And he didn't want to change his life, did he? And so what did he say? He said, go thy thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for, for thee. That was the biggest mistake of the man's life, wasn't it? And was not that very, very presumptuous of him? That's a big mistake because today is the day of salvation. We don't come to him at our convenience. We come to him when he calls. Because if we don't come to him when he calls, you know what? He may never call again. And every time he is put off, what happens to the heart? It gets harder and harder. And there's less and less trembling. What is it that the Spirit is concerned to convince people about? Well, the answer is given in verse 8, and it consists of three subjects. He's concerned to convict and convince people of what? Sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
And then what we find in verses 9, 10, and 11 is that the Lord very briefly takes up specifically each of those three subjects, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he tells very generally what it is specifically that the Spirit will convince people of in each of these three realms. And he doesn't get into any detail at all. Very short verses. Why doesn't he get into a lot of detail? Well, because he knows the details will come later in the New Testament epistles when the Holy Spirit inspires some of these men to tell us more. But what we have here is enough for us. To begin with, he states specifically what it is that the Lord, the Spirit of God, will reprove the world about with regard to the matter of sin. Verse 9. And notice he says, of sin. That's singular, isn't it? Sin. What specific sin, singular, is it that the Spirit has come to the world to convict and convince people about? What is it? Jesus gives us the answer. It is their disbelief in him. He says of sin, because they believe not on me. That is really remarkable, isn't it? When you think how crammed full this world is of all kinds of iniquities and cruelties and wars and hatred and wickedness of every sort, yet that which the Spirit of the living God is concentrated on is none of those sins, none of the many, many hundreds you could mention, but he is concentrated on the sin of disbelief. When people do not put their faith in the only begotten Son of God. Now, understand this. This does not mean that the Spirit doesn't convict people of sins, plural. Because he does that too, right? Um, And it doesn't mean that he doesn't primarily use the law of God applied to their human consciences. Because, of course, he does that too. That's exactly what took place with Felix. As Paul reasoned with him about righteousness and temperance. Paul began by pointing out the man's sins. You know, temperance, self-control, was not exactly something that was characteristic of Roman officials back in those days. So Paul was reasoning with Felix about his sins and of judgment. It was an application of the law to the man's conscience. And he trembled. He trembled. He knew he was guilty. But the Holy Spirit, you see, takes that when when we know we're guilty that we've broken the law, whether the written law or the law written in our hearts. The Holy Spirit brings that, takes that conviction, and takes it to the finest possible point. When after applying the law to people and leaving them utterly desperate in their condition, knowing that they need a solution, the Holy Spirit then takes them to the answer. The Holy Spirit takes them to Christ. The law is merely like a schoolmaster, right? To bring men to Christ. Spirit-produced conviction doesn't stop with, with a guilty conscience regarding the breaking of the law. That's where it begins. Spirit-produced conviction begins when our consciences tell us we're guilty. You see, there's a... Well, let me not get into that. I'll just confuse you, but some of this is in your notes, so read that. I see I'm losing some of you already. But when someone is feeling the guilt of their sins, that is when it's time to point them to Christ. When they're feeling the guilt of their sins, when they realize they've broken God's law, that's when you take them to Christ. 
And then there is this, this massive, immense, indescribable pressure that takes place in their souls to receive Christ. And, and that's the work of the Spirit of God. That's not anything you and I could do. You know, to, do you remember that when you got saved, the, the pressure that was on your soul that this is true, I'm guilty, I need the Savior, and there's just something that drives that truth home? And I mean, I know where I was and how convinced I was suddenly. Convinced. Convicted first of my sin and then convinced that what those people were telling me from the Word of God was true. And there was just overwhelming pressure to accept Christ. That's the work of the Spirit of God. We, there's nothing you or I could ever do to create that. And you won't have that created if you go into a Buddha temple, a temple to Buddha, or a Hindu temple, or, or a synagogue. They'll, I mean, people can sit there comfortably and admire the service and the ritual and all that, but never have that conviction going on in their heart. That only occurs where the Spirit is at work. God's law and man's conscience will convict the sinner of his sins, plural. But it is specifically the work of the Holy Spirit through the witness of believers to concentrate on convincing men of their great sin, singular. The sin that condemns them to eternal judgment. And that great sin is the sin of rejecting Christ Jesus. In John 5:40, Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, he said, "And ye will not come to me that ye might have life." Did you notice he didn't say to them, "Your problem is that you have a lot of sins in your lives, you hypocrites?" That's not what he said, is it? He said, "Ye will not come to me that ye might have life." The great question between God and man is not the sin question. It is the son question. When a person stands before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, as all unbelievers will do one day, and they hear him say, depart from me, why is it he's saying that? Is it because of that person's sins in their life? No, it's because he says, I never knew you. You rejected me. That's, the, that's what sends people eternally to hell. That's sin. John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he had not believed in the only begotten, the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what... That, that's all I'm going to say about that. All right, let's go on. What is the uh, second matter of concern in the Spirit's worldwide ministry of reproving? What is it? Righteousness. Righteousness. In John 16:10, we are presented by the Lord with the other side of the salvation process. The Holy Spirit not only convicts men of their unrighteousness or their sin, but he also shows them how righteous... Jesus Christ is. You know, the world on its own has no adequate sense of true godly righteousness. Go out there and take a survey. Ask people what, what true righteousness is. The, the more 
unrighteous men become, and in these last days they are waxing worse and worse, coming up with, well, I guess there's nothing new under the sun, but all kinds of, seems to me, new perversions, but I guess they're not new. But they are becoming more and more evil. But the more unrighteous they become, you know what they just do? They lower the standards, that's all. The principle of relativity is what rules the human standard. They measure themselves by themselves. And that way, I mean, that that doesn't really mean anything because all we, we simply have to do is measure ourselves with those who we see are worse than us. And then we can perceive of ourselves as better than we really are, right? If you're going to measure yourself, you measure yourself against somebody, you're surely going to pick somebody who's a whole lot worse than you, <laughs> you know? There's only one true and absolute standard of righteousness against which we measure ourselves, and who is he? Who's our standard? The one perfect man, Christ Jesus. To have God's perspective of our real spiritual condition, we need to measure ourselves by Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's ministry, therefore, is to show men the righteousness of Christ so that they realize their own great spiritual need when they measure their, themselves up to him. Now, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would reprove the world of righteousness. And what's the reason he gave? Look at the rest of verse 10. How is he going to do this? Because I go to my Father... And ye see me no more. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that first time, and many years after, and I read it, it just didn't really click with me. We probably wonder, what does that have to do with convincing, convicting and convincing the world of righteousness? Why does the Lord speak about his departure to the Father when he's talking about the Spirit's convicting work of righteousness here? Wasn't the Lord's righteousness displayed while he was here on earth? Wasn't it? Absolutely. But how would we know that Christ was entirely righteous? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand that God's, the Father, God the Father's acceptance of his Son into his presence after his ascension was the greatest proof of all of Christ's righteousness. Now let me explain this to you. When the Lord was on the earth, he claimed to have the power and authority to forgive sin, right? And to be himself holy and sinless, the very Son of God. He made those claims. He also declared that whoever believed on him would have eternal life. But back in some kind of a time machine, did you ever really wish those things were true? I have, many times. Wish there was a time machine. And that if we could go back in a time machine to Jerusalem on the day of a certain Passover crucifixion, what would we see? Well, we would see a man struggling under the heavy weight of a rough-hewn crossbeam wending his way down the Via della Rosa. And we would then see him nailed to that cross and hung up between two ordinary thieves, two 
common criminals. We would see this one beaten and bloodied and battered, uh, just as any other condemned criminal under Roman law. And if you came back some five days later, and this one's body was still moldering in his grave, it would be apparent, wouldn't it, that he was indeed just an ordinary man. And all of his proclamations to his sinlessness and his ability to, to, um, to give eternal life, all those proclamations would be bogus, right? They'd all be negated if he was still there in his grave, decomposing. Now just suppose Jesus had remained in the tomb and he had not risen. What would the evidence about him have been? Well, that he was simply an imposter, another false messiah like so many before and after him. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Might as well pack up and leave and go home and eat, drink, and be merry, right? That would have been the end of his righteousness, despite his 33 years of perfection. You see, that one negative would have negated his perfect life. Because that one negative, that he was still in the grave, would have shown him to be a liar. Because he said on the third day, he would rise again, right? So, even if he'd lived perfect for 33 years, but didn't rise from the dead... That one lie would negate his whole life of perfection. And that would be the end of his righteousness. <clears throat> but he did say he would rise on the third day. And that's why they put a guard at his tomb, isn't it? But what if, okay, you're, and you're, still, you're in your little time machine. What if on the third day following his death, you went to his tomb and you saw with your own eyes that it was absolutely empty, except for his grave clothes lying there, empty like a cocoon shell, you know, just still in the form that they were when they wrapped the body, but no, but hollow, like a hollow egg. <laughs> and there was his face napkin neatly folded. What, what then? What, did you know? Here's something else I want to throw out. Did you know? Do you know what the great standard miracle of the Old Testament is? I mean, when, when God always talked to Israel about his, the demonstration of his power, what's the miracle he always goes back to? What's the great standard miracle of the Old Testament? You know what it is. It's when Moses lifted up his staff and parted the Red Sea. And those who believed in the word of, the, of God through his prophet Moses crossed over on dry ground. But the Egyptians, those who represent the world, who didn't believe in the word of God and who were pursuing God's people, oh no, that's a big no-no. Do not go after God's people. Where are they? They're still lying at the bottom of the Red Sea. That is the great miracle of the Old Testament that demonstrates the power of God's deliverance. 
What is the great miracle of the New Testament? It is Jesus lifted up on the cross. He's the one who parts the way for believers to walk, just pass over into his presence in the promised land. Whereas the Egyptians, the people of this world who do not believe in him, what happens to them? Just like the Egyptians, they will perish in judgment. The great miracle of the New Testament is the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God for the deliverance of all people. The resurrection and exaltation of Christ is the indisputable proof of his righteousness. But how is the world to know and be convinced of this? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And how does he do that? How does he convince people of Christ's righteousness? Well, how did he do it on the day of Pentecost? All right. After the news about that strange sound, like a rushing mighty wind, and the cloven tongues of fire that appeared upon the believers in Christ, after that news was spread throughout Jerusalem, and a multitude gathered, and they heard believers speaking to them in all of their own native tongues, they asked the question, what meaneth this? Peter stood up, and what did he say? He said that what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of Joel 2.30. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter charged them with having crucified Jesus Christ. And he declared that God had raised him from the dead and exalted him. Thus justifying all of Jesus' claims. Now, here are Peter's exact words. This is Acts 2.33. Peter said this, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he, Jesus, hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Okay, now I've got a question for you. Think about this. The disciples knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead, right? How did they know Jesus had been raised from the dead? They saw him with their own eyes. He stayed with them for 40 days. They had witnessed him in his resurrected body. But here's my question. How would they have known that he had been exalted to the right hand of God the Father? How would the disciples have known that? Peter just said on the day of Pentecost, he said that he had been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. How would they have known that? They would not have known that because they didn't see him after he ascended in the clouds. That was the end. That's the last time they saw him. They didn't know he made it all the way and that God welcomed him with loving arms and seated him at his right hand. They would not have known that unless a witness of that very scene was sent to them from heaven. And that witness was who? God, the Holy Spirit. He served as the evidence that Jesus had indeed reached his 
destination. You see, the receipt of the promised gift of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was sufficient evidence to the disciples that Jesus had reached heaven and that the Father had approved of his work on earth and he had accepted his son's sinless sacrifice on the cross. And as an acknowledgement of his son's complete righteousness, he exalted him to a seat on his throne at his right hand. Now, Peter would state this defense, this is in Acts 5, as he stood before the Sanhedrin council, he said, The God of our fathers hath raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince. You know what? He's not yet a king. He's not yet a king. He will be. It's the time of his second coming. King of kings. He'll rule as king. But he says he's exalted him to his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we, his disciples, are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost. Those are Peter's exact words. You see, the law required how many witnesses to prove something as fact? Two. Two. And while the disciples could bear witness to the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, they could not give witness and testimony as to his exaltation because that was beyond their human vision. However, the Holy Spirit could, and he was sent to earth to bear witness to the disciples and through them to the world of that very fact. If the Lord had not been utterly righteous, you see, the Father would never have received him back and exalted him. And the Spirit would never have been sent to give testimony of that exaltation. Are you getting it? I know it takes a while to get there, but I hope when we get there, you get it. (laughs) So then, it is the Holy Spirit who is the one, only one, only one, who can convince the world of Jesus' righteousness. And that is why salvation comes when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth what? That God has raised him from the dead. And you become convinced that God the Father was utterly receiving of his son. And if a person tends to be refusing of that, there is a a third subject of the Spirit's ministry. He also reproves the world of what? What's the last thing? quickly. We won't take as long with this one, but he also reproves the world of judgment. Look at verse 11. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Who's the prince of this world? Satan. Okay. The world in general, you know, is not convinced of a final judgment before which one day they will stand utterly helpless and hopeless to give an account for themselves. Most people, if you would ask them about heaven, they would say that they think they will be what? They think they'll be there. They think they'll be okay. Why? Because they're measuring themselves against Hitler's and Stalin's and Ahmadinejad and bad people, right? I think I'll be okay. They're either trusting in their religion to get them in, or they just figure that they're good enough and certainly not bad enough to deserve hell if they even believe in a literal hell. Most people today don't even believe in a literal hell. 
The world needs to be convicted of the fact that they will one day stand before the great white throne judgment seat and they will find themselves. This isn't just pie in the sky. This is going to happen. They will find themselves in the most catastrophic, disastrous position of their entire existence because they're going to discover that apart from Christ's righteousness being imputed to them, they have absolutely no righteousness of themselves. No matter how many beads they've counted on a rosary, no no matter how many candles they've lit, no matter how many infidels they might have killed, no matter how many meals they might have placed before some stone statue, or doors they knocked on with their Book of Mormon or their Plain Truth magazine, or no matter how many good deeds they did even in the name of Christ, apart from his righteousness being imputed to them by their own faith in him and making it personal, they have no righteousness. Their mouths will be shut, shut, stop, no excuse. So the world needs to be convicted and convinced of judgment to come. And what is it that convicts and convinces people of their desperate, vulnerable condition? Again, it's the reproving work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason he can apply his conviction work so forcibly today as compared to the time before the cross is... Because the prince of this world has been judged. Now, these are hard subjects. I'm really, I mean, we're really getting deep here. This is really deep. But the reason he can convict the world more today since the cross and the ascension of Christ is because the prince of this world has already been judged. The New Testament, and this is all developed. I mean, he doesn't explain this here because he knows, he's going to say in a little while, if I told you guys more, you wouldn't get it. They're not getting what he is saying very briefly, but he knows they will, you know, because truth is progressive. So he's going to take this step by step. You know, you can't teach a little kid what I'm trying to teach you today, can you? There's no way they could comprehend it. So he's taking them step by step. But he's saying that um, the world can, the spirit could um, convict the world now because of the fact that, that the uh, Satan has been judged. There's something, I was saying, uh, something very mysterious that went on at the cross that dealt, and we, we can't understand it exactly, we can't describe it, and you just know that it happened. It's a mystery, but there was something that happened at the cross that dealt the power of evil a death blow right at his center. Something happened at the cross to a certain degree that snapped the immense, universal almost irresistible power of evil in the world. It is why Jesus could say, as he did in John twelve thirty one, now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And remember one of the last things he said right before they left the upper room? Remember the next thing he said after this was, arise, let us go hence? And then he's on his way to Gethsemane. The last thing before that, he had said, um, hereafter, I will not talk much with you. He's talking to his men. 
For the prince of this world cometh, and he hath nothing in me. Remember that? That's back in um, John fourteen thirty. And in Colossians 2.15, we are told that on the cross, the Lord Jesus literally spoiled principalities and powers. You know, there's a hierarchy in the demonic world. He spoiled them, and he made an open show of them, triumphing over them, it says in Colossians. It was Satan's prideful, selfish, sinful, sinful influence that brought corruption and decay and death to this earth, right? We could say that Satan is the author of death. So to overcome the work of Satan, it was necessary for the Lord to die on the cross and by rising from the dead to do what? Abolish death. 2 Timothy 1.10. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, Christ might destroy him that hath the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The world out there is in bondage to what? To death. They don't like to think about it, but they're held in bondage to it. They know it's coming. But Christ has broken the devil's grip over death forever. Who now holds the keys to both hell and death? What did Jesus say, the resurrected Christ, say in Revelation 1.18? He said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. If you want to cross over on dry ground, you know, not even lose your consciousness, absent from the body, present with the Lord into the promised land, you believe in Christ. There's no death for those in Christ Jesus. Now, we know, of course, that while Satan's sentence has not yet gone into full effect, he's been sentenced, he's been judged, but he's on a long chain, isn't he? <laughs> uh, he is, he, he, um, he will be, we know, he'll spend a thousand years in the bottomless pit during the millennial kingdom, and then he'll be loosed, and there'll be one more little quick rebellion, and then where will he be sent? Forever. Cast into the lake of fire forever. Uh we know this from scripture and he knows this but he does not want the world to know this what do the world think when we tell them something like that oh they think we're crazy absolutely mock and laugh at us and scorn and say that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard he doesn't want the world to know about his coming judgment uh, because he'll, he knows he'll lose his influence it is therefore the reproving work of the Holy Spirit in this special church age to convince the world that Satan has been judged and that his power is on the wane and that death will soon be swallowed up in the victory that the resurrection will have uh, on, over all the graves of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. As the tomb could not hold Jesus, guess what? Your grave will not hold you. But I got good news. I don't think most of us are going to have to be buried. I told my daughter the other day, when I die, I want you to bury me on our land. She just got freaked out about that. I said, between, you know, Zaugui and, and Caesar, those are my two favorite dogs. They're buried on our land. I said, just put me over there. I don't, you know what? I don't want to be buried with a bunch of dead people. Do you? <laughs> I'd rather be buried with some dead dogs. No. 
But then I said, you know what, I'm not going to worry about a grave, because I think, I think we're going to be out of here very, very soon. He is coming back. I mean, it is getting close. Satan's judgment acts, therefore, as both a warning and a guarantee of the coming judgment of every sinner who rejects Jesus Christ. If Jesus can destroy and judge the greatest sinner in the entire universe, Satan, then how can a mere human sinner ever, ever think that he or she will escape judgment? Right? If Satan's been judged, certainly all men who have followed him will be judged. The bottom line is that there can be no spiritual conversion without spiritual conviction. And there can be no conviction apart from who? Third member of the triune God without the spirit of God who uses the word of God and the witness of the child of God. So this all means that the only effective witness is a witness that majors on five vital truths. Sin, righteousness, judgment, the word of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Five is the number of grace, isn't it? Sin, righteousness, judgment, the word of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Any witness or any testimony that does not include those five basics is just an exercise in vain rhetoric. And I got news for you. You can turn on some of the church channels on TV and you will find a lot of vain rhetoric. Listen for those words, okay? (laughs) Any minister, man or woman, I was listening to Pastor Paula last night. That's the first time I'd ever seen her. Have you ever heard of her? Wow. I mean, she was eloquent. She was, ooh, Pastor Paul. Anyway, um, but any, any minister, man or woman, who preaches or shrinks from preaching any one of those things is self-employed. They are not spirit-empowered. You know why there is no conviction in most churches today? Do you know why there's no conviction? You can go there and sit there very comfortably. And not be convicted. You know why there's no conviction in probably 90% of our churches today in the United States? It's because the Spirit cannot convict without the Word of God's teaching about sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's simply not being taught in most churches today. Sad to say. But exciting to say that means we are in the last days. Because the Lord predicted that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the operation of the Spirit in the world, yet to this day that we do live still in the day of grace. Thank you for he who ministers worldwide in a way that he could not operate before the finished work of our Lord on the cross and his acceptance into your presence and his destroying of the power of Satan. Father, we do pray for the Spirit to do his work in a mighty way in the lives of our lost loved ones while there's yet time. We know, Lord, that the days are getting increasingly short and that you will indeed be here very, very soon. 
And so we ask that you would shake up and cause to tremble and make utterly miserable, Lord, those who do not yet know you. Make them miserable so that they will indeed turn to you in faith, genuine faith, and not commit the one sin that you will never, ever forgive, the rejection of your son, the one who gave his very life and shed his absolutely sinless blood so that they might escape spending eternity in a place that was not originally prepared for them, but was prepared for the devil and his fallen angels. Lord, we pray that you would send the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, after those we love who are apart from you. Oh God, we pray. Amen. Thank you.